It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday night, November the 10th, 2016. We welcome you to the program. We look forward to our discussion from the Bible tonight. Hope you'll join in with us. Um, my name is Greg Gwynn. I'm not sitting in my normal seat. I'm sitting in Jacob's seat, who's out of pocket tonight. Sitting in my chairs, good friend Monty Overton. Monty, thanks for joining us on the Virtual Bible Study tonight. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure. All right, and, and behind the board, we've got Josh McCord. Josh, thanks for being there. Yep, thanks for having me. All right, I think oh, we got good mic levels everywhere, Josh, it sounds like. So we're ready to roll. We thank you for being out there listening to the Virtual Bible Study. If you're listening in our live audience, uh, we're glad you're there. We hope you'll join us, uh, especially in the chat room. Sign into the chat room and begin to make comments there. Uh, you can send us emails. We'll try to field our emails as the... As the program goes along, our email address is questions at collegeview.com. Always remember that College View is spelled a little crazy, C-O-L-L-E-G-E-V-U-E, College View. And our address is collegeview.com, questions at collegeview.com. And you can call us. We have a toll-free number, 877-381-4567. So several ways for you to be in touch. Most people these days are in touch with us via the chat room. We see several folks in there already. We want to get some more in there and get your comments. We're continuing tonight a discussion. Hope we can wrap it up. Uh, a Baptist preacher by the name of Dr. Robert Morey has written an article entitled 12 Reasons Why Baptism is Not Essential to Salvation. And what we have, what we began last week and what we want to hopefully conclude tonight, Monty, is a review of those 12 Baptist arguments why ba- baptism is not essential. Yeah, we, we can go back over them, I guess, the four that we got through last night and just mention them and then... We can tear through the rest of them. Yeah. I, I, I really don't want to spend too much time on the old because we will run out of time for the, the new. But we've got four covered. We've got eight to go. Uh, but I would say, I guess, in a, sort of in overview, Monty, uh, these are pretty standard arguments. Most of them are. Yeah. They, we're going to talk with, about a couple tonight about trying to parallel baptism with circumcision. And I haven't heard made much. Uh, but, but a lot of the arguments that he makes among these 12 are pretty standard Baptist stuff. Yeah. You know, the very first one on there, though, to me was sort of amazing that somebody would put that, that the Campbells would be lost. To me, that's sort of a, okay, so what? That's got nothing to do with anything. I mean, yeah. there's lots of people that's, that's lost because baptism is essential to salvation, and they've never been baptized. Yeah, we, we pointed so out last irrelevant. week. We pointed out last week we're not, we're not uh, standing here in any sense of loyalty to the to Thomas or Alexander Campbell. And so whatever may have happened to them or what they believed or taught or practiced about baptism is really not critical to the to the issue. Right. So uh, that's out the question. Uh, he talked about John the Baptist's baptism. Uh, we talked about that last week. John Baptist's baptism was only for a very short period of time. It was a, a baptism of repentance unto the remission of sins, Mark chapter uh, 1, verse 4. Uh, but it was done away when the the gospel of Christ began to be preached on the day of Pentecost when baptism for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ uh, was taught on Pentecost and, and thereafter. John's baptism didn't have anything to do with anybody. It's thereafter. irrelevant now. It doesn't yeah, apply to exactly us. Exactly right. We, he, he argued that Jesus never baptized anyone, but John chapter 4 verse 12 says he did make more disciples and baptize more than John. But it goes on to specify that his disciples did the physical baptizing, but we've never made it a point to argue that it's important who does the baptizing. It doesn't matter who does that. Uh, And then he argued that baptism is not a part of the gospel preaching, and we showed, I think, uh, clearly that, uh, especially from Acts chapter 8 in the case of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, 
the uh, Philip preached Jesus to the man, and the man learned the necessity because he's the one who asked to be yeah. baptized. And so uh, you can go back. Anybody who's listening, especially if you're listening in the podcast versions, go back to the previous uh, last week's program which would have been November the 3rd, go back to that program. You can get up to speed on those first four arguments. We want to jump into the remaining arguments made by this man, Robert Murray. A little bit of background on this guy. I, I, I forgot to bring his bio from last uh, to the program last week. This guy's fairly well-known, and he's been on some uh, uh, TV programs and networks that you've probably heard about, TV programs like the 700 Club, uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network, the John Ankerberg Show. show. Yeah, you've probably heard of those programs, and this fella has been on those programs. He has his own uh, national talk show called Bob Mori Live. He's the executive director of an organization called Faith Defenders. They have a website at faithdefenders.com. Uh, and that's where this article, you can find a copy of this article on that website if you go there. He's the president of a non-sanctioned uh, or non-accredited uh, uh uh, Bible University in California, the California Biblical University and Seminary, although that is, my understanding is that's not an accredited university. He's the president of that. So he's got some credentials associated to his name. Uh, that doesn't really matter to us either, Monty. You know, credentials don't mean anything. Uh, at one time I was involved with a program selling insurance, and some insurance salesmen have, after their name, the letters CLU and People always say that's just three-fifths of a cluck. So the fact that somebody's got a bunch of letters after their name really has any, nothing to do with anything because they can still be idiots. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay. Uh, all right. So we've got 12 reasons. We're going to try to cover the last eight of them. If you look, again, you can go back to last week's program and pick up a discussion of the first four of those arguments made by Dr. Robert Morey. We're going to start with question number five or reason number five. We sent this out again to our update list today to, to, to tell you what our subject was going to be uh, and, and uh, encourage your participation and feedback in the program tonight. So if you're not on our update list, uh, get on that list by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com. All right, here's his reason number five why baptism is not essential to salvation. He says, quote, Paul argues in Romans chapter 3, verses twenty. 8 through 30, that since there is only one God, there can be only one way of salvation. This means that whatever is essential to salvation today must be the same throughout all ages. While faith and repentance pass this test, baptism does not because it was not present in the Old Testament. How can baptism be essential to salvation when it was not present in the Old Testament? Well, I don't, just on the surface of that, Monty, there are a number of things that we do as Christians that were not present in the Old Testament. Observing the Lord's Supper was not in the Old Testament, but we do it, uh, you know. Uh, so you could probably name a number of things like that. And the way he has stated this, I just think is really flawed. Uh, however, I think I might could say that for him in a way that potentially he would agree with. Through all dispensations of time, justification with, before God has been based upon faith. That's true. Justification has been by faith. But, it's, but, but the problem is uh, that when he, wants, when he wants to talk about faith, he wants to talk about faith only. Mm-hmm. The justification by faith, that has always, that's always how men could stand before God justified, was by faith. But that faith always was a faith that was demonstrated in obedience, faith linked with obedience. You know, when we read in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about several people in there like Abel. And, and by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham left his homeland. That all these, Every one of these mentions faith and then actions that corresponded to that faith, that demonstrated their faith. Yeah. It was obedient faith. They was given commands, things to do, and by faith they, they followed the instructions they were given. Exactly right. Think about Noah. Think about Noah as an example. Noah was a man of faith. 
in fact, as you mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 11, he, he's one of the first ones that is brought up as a demonstration of the kind of faith that saves. By faith, Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. His righteousness was by faith. Mm-hmm. What kind of faith? Well, the faith that would cause him to do the incredibly tough job of building that enormous ark. Right. Uh, so, uh, yes, we believe that justification through all time has been by faith. But always it's been a faith that obeys God's commands that are specific to the people at that time and at that place. Noah had to build an ark. Abraham had to leave his homeland. Uh, Moses had to go stand before he, he had to reject the privileges of, of, of uh, Pharaoh's family and instead actually go to Pharaoh and oppose him. All those heroes of faith, they, there were always things they had to do. What we have to do is obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes baptism for the remission of sins. You know, in his argument here, he's saying that because baptism wasn't included in the Old Testament, it can't be part of the plan of salvation now. Well, there's lots of things that were included in the Old Testament law that we don't do now and that this man is a, exactly as right. a Baptist doesn't do. Now. He doesn't do animal sacrifices and, and just all these rituals that was required under the law of Moses to be kept. So if he's going to say because baptism wasn't, under the old law. Well, then he needs to be keeping the old law completely if he's going to be consistent. Well, or, look, or, or yeah, I think you're right. Or look at it this way. If, if the only thing he sees consistently through these dispensations of time is faith, then if he argues we don't have to be baptized because it wasn't in the Old Testament, would he argue? He wouldn't. But wouldn't consistency require that Noah would not have had to build the ark. Because it's not in the New Testament. Yeah, because it's not something that's consistent Consistent. across the board. Abraham would not have had to leave his homeland. No, God's never asked me to leave Middle Tennessee. Right. So, in other words, he's saying the only thing that's consistently required through the time is faith. His his mistake, though, is to argue that it's faith only. Mm -hmm. Yes, faith has always been required by God. And the kind of faith that God's always required is a faith that leads to obedience. And all those great heroes of faith, in fact, it's kind of an interesting exercise. We've done it before on the Virtual Bible Study, uh, and you can do it, and probably many of you have done it before. Uh, In my text, I've just gone through, in all of those examples in Hebrews chapter 11, I've I've underlined what they did by faith. Mm -hmm. All of them are mentioned as people of faith. But all of them are also described by what they did. Yeah. The faith that pleases God has always been a faith that leads to obedience. And without obedience, then you don't really have faith. I think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's grab a quick break, and then we'll, we're going to have to move fast. That's number. That's reason number five. We've got seven more to go, Monty, so we'll have to move fast. We're talking about Baptist arguments why faith is not essential. Twelve reasons by Dr. Robert Morey. We think he's wrong on all counts, and we'll continue the discussion when we get back from this break. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. I'm Greg Gwynn, a host of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for joining us for tonight's program. The Virtual Bible Study is presented weekly by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Each week on the Virtual Bible Study, we simply engage in a study of God's Word in an effort to better understand it, better understand how God views us, and better understand what He wants from us in our lives. We're not studying any creeds. We're not studying any books written by men. We're just studying the Bible. And we're trying to study the Bible alone without any of our opinions or wisdom mixed in. We're only interested in what our Creator has revealed to us in his word. We realize that we're fallible and cannot direct our own steps. As a result, what we think or feel doesn't really matter. All that matters is what God has said. So that's what the virtual Bible study is all about. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we hope you'll make plans to join us every Thursday night for the virtual Bible study. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Life with Christ is an endless hope. Without him, it's a hopeless end. Shall I grudge to spend my life for him who did not grudge to shed his lifeblood for me? Kindness gives birth to kindness. Honesty is the first chapter in the book of wisdom. A lot of people mistake a short memory for a clear conscience. Man, wish I'd said that. 
Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. And we're back on the virtual Bible study. We're talking about some mistaken arguments offered by a Baptist preacher named Dr. Robert Morey. Twelve reasons, he says, why baptism is not essential to salvation. We think he's wrong on all counts. Uh, we're going quickly uh, to try and get through this article tonight. We're talking now about reason number six. He says justification is by faith apart from the works of the law. Here's what he says. Paul argues that justification has always been by faith apart from the works of the law. It was true of Abraham before the law and David, uh, Romans chapter 4, 1 through 5, and David after the law, Romans chapter 4, 6 through 8. No Campbellite, Catholic, Lutheran, Mormon, United Pentecostal, and so forth has ever produced one verse where justification is by baptism. Well, uh, I guess one of the things we could point out f- about this uh, before we go further uh, is to sort of notice how he's arguing, make, trying to make this case. He's trying to he's trying to uh, sort of condemn us by as guilt by association when he talks about. Uh, Catholics, Lutherans, Mormons, and Pentecostals. You know, he's trying to—he's sort of trying to paint us all with the same brush. Uh, but uh, we're not like the Catholics. We don't baptize babies, and we're not like the Mormons. We don't baptize for dead people. For dead people. Uh, um, we don't. We're not like the Pentecostals who claim that you have to have a special formula of words mm-hmm. to make baptism valid, and so you know the, to talk about others who who have erroneous views and practices about baptism and then try to throw us in because they're wrong, we must be wrong too. Is is pretty faulty argumentation. Yeah. You know it, that doesn't work, but the, it doesn't change the fact that as we've been talking about being justified by faith, yes, we are justified by faith. And we're baptized because we have faith that the Bible teaches us to do that. You know, in Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 27, uh, verse 27 says, As many as you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we have faith in Jesus and we, we're, into, we're, put in, we're baptized into Christ. We come at to that through baptism. And so we have faith in that. The Bible tells us that. We have faith in it and we do it because we have that believing faith, that obedient faith. Yeah. Uh, regardless of what this fellow wants to say, you know, he said we've never, no one, nobody has ever produced one verse where justification is by baptism. I, I would have to agree that I can't find a verse that has the word justification in it and baptism yeah. in it at the same place. But I don't have to in mm-hmm. order to prove the necessity of baptism. Jesus still said, "He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved." Mark sixteen verse sixteen. Uh, Peter. Uh, Still said on Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, what, what? Again, this goes to what we were saying earlier, that this Dr. Robert Morey does not understand the relationship between faith and obedience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he said that Abraham was justified by faith. Well, Think about the case of Abraham. Uh, what did he do? When God gave him instructions, he obeyed he them. them. Uh, when, when he told him to leave his homeland and go to a, to a place he didn't even know about, he was willing to do that at the command of God. When when God instructed him to offer his son Isaac uh, as a sacrifice, he was willing to do that. If that's what God told him to do, he was, he was willing to do that. Of course, we understand it. That did not go through completely, but he he demonstrated but it his also willingness. tells us he knew that he had faith that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Exactly so right. God said do it. He was going to do it because he had faith that God could fix it and make it work out. Yeah. You know, uh, in uh, Rome, let, let's look at Romans chapter 4 for just a minute. In Romans chapter 4, one of the verses that, that these folks like to emphasize is Romans 4, verse 4. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Well, the kind of work that's that's being described there is a work of, of perfection, of a meritorious work. Mm-hmm. Look at me. Look what I've done. God, you owe me salvation. And, and so he says... Uh, if if you could earn your salvation by works, then it wouldn't be a gracious gift of God. He would owe it to you. 
But you can't do that. There's there's no there's no level of work that you could accomplish wherein God would owe you salvation. Uh, it's always going to be by grace through faith. Uh, but that does not negate the necessity of obedience. You know, if there was any owing taking place, I owe God all the works that I could possibly ever do, the works of righteousness, keeping his commandments. I owe him that. He doesn't owe me anything. And the fact that I've sinned and failed in that one time means there's, you know, I've, I've forfeited salvation. I, you know, I, I messed up, and there was nothing I could do to fix it because if I was completely kept the law and only ever sinned one time, I've still outside. I've messed up, and I yeah. can't fix it. Yeah. So I don't. God doesn't owe me anything. I owe God. Yeah. Uh, somebody uh, proposed sort of an interesting illustration along that line. I thought it was pretty good. He says, okay, so uh, let me just read this illustration. And this is by Jeff Asher. I think uh, he did a pretty good job of illustrating. I think I've got, I'm, I think I'm crediting the right person with this. Uh, uh, he said, uh, suppose I exit the highway. I miss seeing the reduced speed ahead sign and continue at the accelerated rate. Also suppose that while traveling that elevated speed, I pass a policeman with a radar gun. My dilemma is apparent. Now let's continue with the hypothetical. When the officer informs me of my infraction, I suggest a remedy. I will return to the point on the road where the limit was reduced and traverse it again at the appropriate speed. The officer is not amused. Why? Because he knows that future compliance does not atone for past transgression. He says that's the nature of law. It requires it to be done correctly every time, makes no provision for removal of guilt. And so that's why we need grace, and that's why we need God's forgiveness. And Abraham did too, but Abraham still had to be obedient. Uh, In Romans chapter 4, when it says, Abraham worketh not, he was not excluding Abraham's obedience. We've shown that Abraham was uh, a man who responded to God's instruction and was obedient. Actually, taking this interpretation of Romans chapter 4 that this Dr. Robert Morey does forces a direct contradiction with James. James chapter 2, verse 21, Abraham, our father, was was justified by works. Mm -hmm. Not works of merit. That's what Romans 4 is talking about. But works of obedience, that's what James chapter 2 is talking about. And they're not contradictory. So... Romans chapter 4, Abraham was not, did not earn his salvation. He didn't work works of, uh, of, of merit where he could claim that God owed him salvation. Abraham was not saved by works of merit, Romans 4. James chapter 2, Abraham was justified by works, works obedience. of obedience. His faith led him to obedience. The, and those passages have to be harmonized, and that's the only way they can be harmonized. All right. All uh, right. We've got just one person talking in the chat room. Guess 2825 says uh, he, he mentioned that in, there was a sort of a sense of baptism in the Old Testament when Moses led the people across the Red Sea, referencing 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. And then he says, why is this so hard? Justification by faith and then obedience. Obedience cannot come before salvation. Well, uh Obedience cannot come before salvation. I'd have to disagree with it. Justification by faith and then obedience. No, I don't think that's, I don't think you can separate the two. Justification is by faith that leads to obedience. Uh, The faith that saves is an obedient faith. Obedience does come before salvation. Faith that obeys is required in order to be saved. You know, if it was only faith, then the scripture, the passage that says even the demons believe and tremble would be meaningless because demons probably have a stronger belief than I do. Being spiritual creatures, we know the devil has been in the presence of God. He's seen God. I have faith that God exists. The evidence tells me he does. But the devil has actually seen him. But he's not obedient. He's not going to heaven. He's not saved. Yeah, James 2.19. And he, he definitely yeah. believes. Yeah, James 2.19. I think you're right. All right, so we've got uh, reasons five and six dealt with. Let's go on to question uh, to point number seven. Reason number seven why Dr. Robert Morey says. By the way, Josh, got any comments? Yeah, I think on that justification by by faith and baptism not being, you know, there's no verse that says 
baptism involved in justification. I think that Peter did write in First Peter three twenty one that baptism doth also now save us. So you know, being saved is and justified. I think he I think he clearly states that. That's my only input on that. Okay. That All right. Thanks. I've been overlooking a couple of emails that we had in our file. One is from Kent in Georgia who talks about. There's only been one plan of salvation. He says it's sort of an ambiguous statement. Obviously, accountable humanity could always be acceptable to God, even in the Old Testament. That, however, does not mean that God has always had the same plan. We note faithful people of God who lived prior to the coming of Christ in the Old Testament in in Hebrews chapter 11. None of them were justified by God the same way. Uh, Certainly not the same way alien sinners are justified today. They believed God would send a promised Messiah, yet they did not understand that Jesus would be that Messiah. They were required to obey the conditions under the covenant to which they were amenable. We do not live amenable to those same conditions we live under the New Testament law of Christ. I think that's right. We had a note from uh, Chris in the UK in regards to this justification is by faith apart from the works of the law. He says baptism. No one ever said baptism was a work of the law. You know, the works of the law, one of the things that a lot of people overlook look there is that's talking about the law of Moses. Yeah. That's not just talking about law uh, as a general term. That's talking specifically about the law of Moses. Yeah, that was a contrast there showing that we don't have to follow it anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, let's go. Uh, he's got a couple of points here, Monty, that I, I, this is a little different than what I've that I've come up against in the past, arguing against uh, baptism. He says, baptism is the New Testament parallel to circumcision, just as the Lord's Supper is the parallel to the Passover. And he references Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Since circumcision is nothing, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, and did not save anyone, then why should baptism? So he says, basically, he says, baptism is nothing because circumcision is nothing. And we're going to take question eight with this. He says, uh, uh, Paul points out that Abraham was justified by faith before he obeyed God in circumcision. This clearly applies to us. The Campbellite doctrine destroys the parallel between circumcision and baptism. Well, I don't know. I feel like he's just straining here to try and make a point. Well, for one thing, in point seven where he said baptism in the New Testament parallel, just as the Lord's Supper is the parallel to the Passover. The Lord's Supper is not the parallel to the Passover. Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross is the parallel. He's the the, sacrificial lamb. He's the parallel to the Passover. The Lord's Supper is a memorial to his sacrifice to remind us of it on a regular basis on the first day of every week when we take it. So the Lord's Supper really isn't related there. Uh, He's talking about Abraham being justified by faith. Before he was circumcised, well, he had he done what God told him before he was circumcised. Circumcision came later on. Yeah. Uh, he'd already been told to leave his homeland and do other things before God ever told him to be circumcised. So, he yes, he was justified by faith before circumcision. and But, but again, obedient faith. Obedient faith. I think the big breakdown in, in, in this part of this article, which is a little hard to understand him making these points, but I think the breakdown is the argument that baptism is a parallel to circumcision. I don't know any place in the Bible that you could go to demonstrate that baptism is parallel to circumcision. This passage in in Colossians 2, let me read it from verses 9 through 13. For in him, that is Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of Godhead bodily, and we are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, and whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith in the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses. Well, first of all, this doesn't say that baptism is the parallel to circumcision. It doesn't even talk about the circumcision of the Old Testament. Mm. This this is talking about circumcision in the sense of we we have the sins taken away from us. What's circumcised from us is our sins when we are buried with him in baptism and risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... 
there's nothing in this text that says that the fleshly circumcision of the Old Testament is parallel to the baptism of the New Testament. That's just that's just not that's just not right. It's just not in the text. But if you look at it, circumcision was a commandment that they had to keep in the old law in order to be in that covenant relationship with God. Baptism is a, something we have to keep in the new law in order to be in that covenant relationship with God. So if you want to look at it as a parallel that way, fine. But one doesn't destroy the other or doesn't detract from the other. One had to be done under one set of laws. This other has to be done under our current set of laws. Yeah. I like what Kent says uh, uh, in his email to us. He says, New Testament baptism is not a parallel with fleshly circumcision of the Old Testament. If it were... Only males could be scripturally baptized, which is an interesting observation. New Testament baptism is a condition of spiritual circumcision, that is, the remission of sins. And that's what Colossians 2 says, Colossians 2, 9 through 13, which we just read. It's talking about a spiritual circumcision, and what's circumcised is our sins. Our sins are cut off. Uh, that's what he's talking about there. And it's really not a reference or a parallel to Old Testament circumcision whatsoever. So I really think arguments 7 and 8, which is trying to base uh, uh, an argument on a paralleling circumcision and baptism and then saying Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, therefore we're justified before we're baptized, that all fails because you cannot he, he cannot sustain his argument that that there is this parallelism between you know, circumcision Abraham and Abraham was justified because when he, obeyed. when he obeyed. We're justified when we obey. Whatever we're told to do now, when we obey that, we're justified. When we act upon faith and do what we're told to do by God, uh, then that that's what brings justification. Right. It was true for Abraham. It's true for us. But his his instructions were different than the instructions we've received. I think that's all we can say about that. And I really don't know how to say more. Uh, uh, he, he's gone to qu- quite some length to try and uh, establish that parallel between circumcision and baptism. I just don't think he can do it. All right. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, Josh, anything? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll keep going forward, trying to deal with these 12 reasons offered by Dr. Robert Morey, a Baptist preacher, trying to argue why baptism is not essential to salvation. The next one's going to be an argument about the conversion of Cornelius. Maybe we can sink our teeth into this a little bit better. Stay with us. We'll be right back on the virtual Bible study after this break. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. Okay, let's try this one more time and see if we can get it straight. We continue to hear folks, even some Christians, who would like to use Jesus' reference to David and the showbread as justification for a kind of situation ethics reasoning. Do you remember the incident in Matthew chapter 12, beginning verse 1? On a Sabbath day, the disciples had passed through a field and gathered some grain to eat. The old law allowed such gathering. It was not stealing. But the Pharisees criticized them as doing that which was unlawful. Their complaint was about the work involved in gathering the grain. While not forbidden by the law of Moses, the Jews had invented certain traditions which prohibited this. 
In response to this criticism by the Pharisees, Jesus said, quote, Have you not read what David did when he was a hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest? He went on to rebuke the Pharisees for, quote, condemning the guiltless, in verse 7. The point here is clear. The Jews regarded David as their great national hero. In the matter of the showbread, David sinned. We must take Jesus at his word. He called David's deed not lawful. The Pharisees overlooked this clearly sinful act, but in the case of Jesus' disciples, they criticized something that was not wrong. Notice that Jesus said it left them, quote, guiltless. Jesus was simply pointing out the inconsistency of the Pharisees in this matter. And so we have here no justification for any situation ethics type of reasoning. Jesus was not holding up David as a worthy example. He was not saying that the law can be broken under certain extreme circumstances. He was not justifying the disciples in a sinful deed. He was pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. That's the true explanation of that passage. Let's learn the lesson. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And we're back on the Virtual Bible Study. We want to remind you that the Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Uh, if you are in the Middle Tennessee area, we'd love to have you physically come and visit with us. Uh, you can check out the times of our meetings and our location on our website at collegeview.com. Uh, if you are not uh, in our immediate area, there's still a lot of resources on our website. Uh, we, we do a sermon podcast weekly. Of course, all the podcasts uh, and archives of the virtual Bible study are available. And so check out our website. And uh, if you're nearby and able or if you're passing through Middle Tennessee area, we'd love to have you come and visit with us at the College View Church of Christ. We're continuing our discussion trying to review 12 reasons offered by Baptist preacher Robert Morey why baptism is not essential to salvation. He tries to make an argument, Monty, from the conversion of Cornelius. Let me read you what he says. Cornelius believed the gospel, was saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues, and then got baptized, Acts 10, verses 44 through 48. Did not Cornelius' salvation take place before baptism? The text clearly states that Cornelius and his family heard the word, believed it, were saved, filled with the Spirit, spoke in tongues, and then were baptized. None of this should have taken place if the Campbellite doctrine was true. Of course, remember, he's identifying us as Campbellites. We reject that designation, but that's who he's talking to. He's talking about us who require baptism for the remission of sins. believe the Bible requires that, and that's what we teach. Okay, what about Cornelius? Well, Cornelius' story is a powerful one, and I think he's absolutely wrong about it. Remember, Cornelius was a Gentile, uh, and the gospel prior to this time in Acts chapter 10 had not been going to Gentiles. Cornelius and his household are going to be used by God to prove that the gospel should go to the Gentiles in addition to the Jews. And so uh, this Cornelius was a very good man. Uh, He received a vision from God. He was told in Acts chapter 10, verse 5, Send men to Joppa, call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. In other words, he says, send for Peter. Peter's going to tell you what you need to do. You know, the New King James said he would tell you what you must do. What you must do. What's required of him to do. All right. So Peter goes. When he gets there, uh, he begins preaching to Cornelius in chapter 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And he just barely gets started. And it says in verse 44, and this is the pas- this is the part of the passage that Dr. Robert Morey emphasizes. Verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them on all them which heard the word and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God then answered Peter can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord then prayed they him to tarry certain days all right now what's interesting here is the angel that appeared to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 6, said that he sent for Peter, he will, quote, tell thee what thou oughtest or what thou must do. 
Well, Peter hadn't got to that yet. He hadn't had time to tell him. In fact, when Peter was retelling this event in the very next chapter, Acts 11, he says in verse uh, 14, Acts 11, verse 14, he's retelling the story. He says, the angel appeared to him. And he says, verse 13, uh, send men to Joppa, call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and thy house shall be saved. How was Cornelius going to be saved? By the words, words that Peter would preach to him. He said, "By he will tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. But notice the next verse, Peter says, verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. He hadn't, he hadn't finished speaking yet. He just got started. He had not told him the words that would be required to tell him what he must do to be saved. The Holy Ghost came on him. The Holy Ghost fell on Cornelius and his household before those words were actually spoken. I'm going to argue this, and I think it's a true argument. Cornelius was not saved simply because the Holy Ghost fell upon him. The fact that the Holy Ghost fell upon him was not an indication of his salvation. He still needed to hear those words. And those words included the requirement of being baptized. Chapter 10, verse 47, uh, or 48, Peter commanded him to be baptized. Could he disobey the command and still be saved? No. He hadn't heard the words yet that would lead to his salvation. When he did, those words included the command to be baptized. You know, there's no evidence that Holy Spirit baptism provided salvation for anyone ever. The only other people that we know of that were baptized by the Holy Spirit were the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And they began to preach from that. Okay? So it doesn't indicate that it was that Holy Spirit baptism had anything to do with their salvation. It doesn't indicate that it had anything to do with Cornelius' salvation. The Holy Spirit baptism enabled the apostles to speak in tongues so that the people they were speaking to would recognize that here's a unique situation. Where, and they even commented that we're all hearing them in our native tongues. So they, it caused belief on, on a part of the hearers. All right. When Cornelius and his household was baptized by the Holy Spirit here, it caused belief on the part of Peter to understand that it was okay for him to preach the gospel to right, Gentiles. Right. So all that, that's all that we know of that Holy Spirit baptized, baptism done was promote belief in the hearers. I think that's right. Uh, you know, often when we try to make this point that the Holy Spirit baptism didn't save Cornelius and his household, I've, I've, I've been in situations where making that point, people just seem like that's just too incredulous, too hard to believe. How could an, uh, how could the Holy Spirit come upon an unsaved man? That's the argument they usually make. Well, I don't know. How did how did uh, Balaam's donkey speak? You know, the the fact that God could miraculously cause something to happen is, does not indicate that 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 person upon which He acted was saved. Unless you want to argue that Balaam's donkey was saved because God empowered him to speak miraculously. I don't think that that's a sign of salvation. There's no place that says that it is, as you accurately pointed out. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit came upon them. But that doesn't mean they were saved yet. They were saved when they were obedient to the the words that would tell them what they must do to be saved. You know, we've studied recently about King Saul. And he went to a place and it says that he was uh, fell down and was prophesying. He, and he was and he a was bad a, guy at that and time. And he was being a bad guy at the time. Yeah. I mean, there's no indication that he was in a good standing with God. Actually, we have a better indication that he wasn't because that was during the time frame or immediately following that that he couldn't get an answer from God about anything. And uh, when Samuel was called up, he said, you know, God's rejected you. That's why you're not getting no answers because God's rejected you. But yet the Holy Spirit fell on this person and caused him to prophesy when he was obviously implied that he was in an unsaved condition. So, again, you, you gotta, this fellow would have to prove, and anybody who makes this argument would have to prove, that they were saved because the Holy Spirit moved upon them. And that is not provable. Uh, in fact, we know that they were still commanded. You know, Kent makes the point, uh, if Cornelius could be saved without baptism, that would make New Testament baptism an optional command. An optional command would be a logical contradiction, an irrational statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a command. It's a command, but you don't have to do it. Yeah. That's not sensible. That's right. And I think that's the point that we got to stress there. All right. We're running out of time. Oh, by the way, in the chat room, uh, 
guest 2825 says, you said justification leads to obedience. No, I didn't say that. I said faith. Faith leads uh, to obedience. Faith that produces obedience leads to justification. Mm-hmm. You, you, so you misrepresented us there. You got us out of order. Uh, all right. Let's take our final break. When we come back, we're going to quickly talk about the thief on the cross, which we've talked about lots of times on the virtual Bible study. We'll be right back after this break. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. This is Stephen Nicholson, a member of the College View Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program. We'd love to hear from you anytime. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Almost half of American churchgoers, 46%, attend a church of 100 or fewer members. More than one-third, 37%, attend a mid-sized church of over 100, but not larger than 499. One out of 11, that's 9%, attends a church between 500 and 999 attendees. And slightly fewer, 8%, attend a very large church of 1,000 or more attendees. That information is via Barna.com. The Word of God says in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6, There is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians three seventeen. Now, back to the program. Let me get our volumes up here. Yeah, we're back. Uh, we're trying to finish quickly these 12 reasons offered by a Baptist preacher why he thinks baptism is not essential to salvation. And we've just discounted them all. We don't think his reasons stand. His arguments are not valid. He makes maybe here, Monty, the oldest Baptist argument of all, or the one we hear most frequently anyway, the thief on the cross. He said the thief on the cross uh, went to heaven without baptism. Since Christ died before the thief died, the thief went. Since Christ died before the thief died, the thief went to paradise through the shed blood of Christ. Hebrews nine fourteen and following. If baptism is essential to go to heaven, how did the thief get there without being baptized? I don't even think I would say it the way he said it. I think I can make his argument better than him, but it's a it's a flawed argument, money. Well, first off, we don't know that the thief wasn't baptized. Uh, the scripture says, even figuratively speaking, that all Israel was going out and being baptized by John the Baptist. So there's a very good chance that this thief had been baptized by John. So that puts that aside. That's not a provable point. It's really kind of irrelevant anyway because the thief was not under the New Testament law of Christ. Yes, that didn't start until the day of Pentecost. And while Jesus was here, he forgave several people of their sins. We have numerous accounts of that in the New Testament where he did that. And so for him to have told this thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, is an implication, a logical conclusion that he was forgiven his sins. He had the power and authority to do that. So the thief got in under a special circumstance. And I've heard people say, well, I want to be saved like the thief was. I don't want to be crucified in order to get saved. I mean, that's, that's not how I would want to do it. That's not a logical thing. That, that can't happen. Those circumstances no longer exist. Yeah, it's, I just think it's so I think this is so easy. When a person, it's like a will today. When a, while a person is alive, they can distribute their possessions any way they want. But after they die, the only way you can get some of their possessions is if you're included in their will and you meet right. the terms of the will. Same thing with Jesus. While he was alive, he could dispense salvation, forgiveness of sins, any way he wanted to. And as you pointed out, there are several individuals mentioned in the Gospels who received the forgiveness of sins by a direct act of Jesus. Thy sins be forgiven thee. He Mm -hmm. said to several different individuals, as we've pointed out in the past. But after he died, the only way you can get that blessing is by meeting the terms of his will. And his terms of his will include baptism for the remission of sins. The thief on the cross received that blessing while Jesus was still alive, and the gospel was not in force yet. After the gospel, after Jesus died, and the gospel was in force, the only way we're going to receive those blessings is by meeting the terms of his will. That's right. That's the only way. I just don't know why that's so hard to understand, and I don't know why Baptists. Uh, 
uh, cannot understand and continually revert to that argument about the thief on the cross. Because they don't really have an argument. Well, it's, yeah, and it's just been mentioned so, I mean, we, we've answered that so often. It, it's just an argument that just not does not stand. But it's obvious that it keeps coming up, and we're going to have to keep answering it, so uh, that's what we'll do. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Uh, let's see. Now, that was, uh, oh, oh, here we go. Now, this one's a weird one. Now, I'm not sure I've heard this before either. Uh, reason number 11, why baptism, he says, should not be necessary or required for salvation. He says, the Campbellite doctrine makes salvation dependent upon availability of water and of a Campbellite. While someone who is alone can believe in Jesus in the desert or at the North Pole, will his salvation be denied because no water for a Campbellite baptism is present? All right. So, uh, first of all, well, we don't the, want anybody to have a Campbellite baptism. Well, there's two parts to this argument. One is, what if you don't have water? And the other is, what if you don't have a Campbellite person to baptize you? We've never, ever taught and actually adamantly deny that there are any requirements upon the person who does the baptizing. We, we disavow that argument that you'd have to be baptized by a Campbellite in order to have salvation. That's just not true. Nobody's ever taught that. I've never known anybody who taught the, the view that, a, that there was a, a necessary requirement on the baptizer to be a part of a specific religious organization in order for your baptizing to be effective. You know, if he's saying it's the Campbellite doctrine, well, then nobody could be baptized scripturally because we don't know of anybody that's been baptized by those guys, for one thing. But the point here, like you're saying, it doesn't matter who does the baptizing. There's no scriptural requirements on that. And to say, well, if you don't have it, there's not enough water available for everyone to be baptized well, uh, as Kent said in his point, he says, Water is essential to physical life. If water is totally absent from a given situation in a geographical area, one will not find permanent residents live in that area. Individuals found there would be nomadic wanderers traveling around. Such being the case, they need to continue to travel to where water is sufficient to be baptized with. So, as he's saying, if there's some place that there's not enough water to be baptized, nobody lives there. They might be passing through, but nobody can live there. The, what an element needed for survival, which is water, yeah. isn't there. It's interesting. So they're going to be going somewhere where there is enough water. When you're there, get it taken care of. It's interesting that God placed a requirement, the, the, the God-given requirement of baptism requires an element that is available everywhere where men live. Because, yeah. as you say, you can't live where there's not water. Uh, you know. Think of how unjust it would have been of God to say, in order to be saved, you have to be immersed in eucalyptus oil. Oh, now we got a problem because that's not available everywhere, you know. And in quantities enough to be immersed in, it's even less likely yeah. that you're going to find that. And God would have placed a uh, an extreme burden, almost impossible to accomplish, upon salvation. He didn't do that. But instead, He put it that you have to be baptized in something that covers three-quarters of the world's surface. Exactly right. Exactly. The most readily available thing that there is. Exactly right. Um, any thoughts, Josh? Yeah, yeah, I think you guys are hitting the nail on the head. This this one just seems like a reach. You know, they're trying to come up with a question, uh, just some kind of far-out question. But, you know, like Monty said, where is a person going to be at where there's no water? Yeah. Uh, that's just They're just trying to grasp at straws, I think. Well, you know, he mentioned the North Pole. There's tons of water in the North Pole yeah. in the form of snow and ice. Build yeah. a fire, melt the stuff, and baptize it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, um, we had an email from Chris in England who said, Really? Uh, no basins? Uh, what about the washings of the Old Testament? Uh, uh, you know, that's I think that's sort of an interesting point. God, God required ceremonial washings in the Old Testament as well. God, but but again, he used water, and he didn't, he didn't require an element different than water. So uh, I, I just think that's... A, you know, sometimes you're better off not to make an argument if it's such a weak argument that it shows that you don't have an argument. Yeah. You know, and I think all of us could probably learn from that. You know, if I'm trying to prove a point, don't don't try to... If you can't make a sound reasonable, solid argument. You're better off not to make an argument at all because if you're going to make foolish, outlandish statements, then then you're weakening your case. And I think he really weakened his case there by making that argument about, you know, you can't find water everywhere. 
Yeah, well, so what? Go yeah. find where there is yeah. some. Yeah. All right, finally, number 12, uh, Dr. Robert Morey, 12 reasons, he says, why baptism is not essential. He argues uh, by saying something about symbol and reality. He says the Campbellite doctrine confuses the symbol with what it represents and is based upon a superstitious and magical view of baptism. Since the Campbellites admit that the bread and the wine are only symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, then on what grounds do they deny that baptism is only a symbol of salvation? Um, well, we agree that the elements of the Lord's Supper are only emblematic or symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, that was obvious from the very institution mm-hmm. of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he was still alive. His body had not been sacrificed. His blood had not been shed. So therefore, when he when he offered the instruction to observe the Lord's Supper, he was clearly making this a figurative representation as a memorial of what he was about to do. He hadn't even done it yet. So it was clearly uh, a representation, not the literal body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Uh, I guess... So Jesus said, do this symbolically to remember me. What what this argument would require then, in other words, he's saying that was symbolic. The Lord's Supper mm-hmm. was symbolic. Baptism is symbolic. Well, we know that the Lord's Supper was symbolic because it, from its very institution, it was so. What he's got to show us is that baptism is symbolic. Uh, you know, you can say whatever you want to say about the Lord's Supper, but you can't make that leap to say then the same thing is true of baptism necessarily. Why? Why is the same thing necessarily so of baptism? Yeah, he needs to he needs to show if he's going to say it's just a symbol, then he needs to show us scripturally where the Bible tells us that it's just a symbol. Yeah, uh, he, he you know he would have to he would have to find a place where it says baptism is symbolic of salvation, or it is used to help us remember our remission from sins. Uh, we could go back to Acts chapter two. Uh, verse 38, which we often reference, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The, a, a typical explanation of that passage is that for the remission of sins means because of. Be, be baptized because your sins have already been remitted, which doesn't even make sense, and of course is, is firmly contradicted by Jesus' words in Matthew 26, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, he spoke of the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus didn't shed his blood because of the remission of sins. He shed his blood in order to obtain or to, in order to make possible the remission of sins. And we are baptized in order to obtain or make possible the remission of our sins. It's not symbolic. It's necessary. You know, in First Peter 3, uh, in verse 20, it talks about Noah who was uh being warned and that he built the ark and that salvation by water through the ark was the symbol but now he says we have the antitype which is baptism which it says uh that's that also an antitype which now saves us baptism is the way it puts it in the yeah. new, in the king new king james version so baptism is the reality yeah uh things like noah or the israelites going through the red sea and being surrounded by water Those that the was types. a symbol that Those was are the, the types, types. But the antitype, the reality is that baptism now saves us, Peter said. First Peter 3.21, exactly right. That's a really good argument, and, and it needs to be stressed from First Peter 3.21. Noah's salvation in the ark was the type, and the reality is our salvation through baptism. That's right. Exactly right. All right, we're, we're out of time. Uh, we've spent a couple weeks um, uh, trying to... Uh, analyze and understand, although I'm not sure I fully understand all the arguments made by this Dr. Robert Maury, but as much as we're able to understand of what he has written, we find to be seriously flawed and in error when contrasted with the truth of the scriptures. And so we reject his arguments. We still continue to maintain that baptism is necessary for the remission of sins. It is an act of faith. We're justified by faith, but it is a faith that requires obedience it's a faith linked with obedience we are justified when we believe and obey uh it's been true throughout time as we said we agree with that god has always required faith and obedience 
the obedient part is for whatever commands apply to you, whatever God has commanded you to do. Noah had to build an ark. Abraham had to leave home. We have to be baptized. And again, we don't want to oversimplify that plan of salvation. Baptism is not the be-all and end-all. It's It's a part of the process. It's a part of the process. Hear, believe, repent, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins, the New Testament plan of salvation. Well, we're out of time. We thank you all for listening to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. Hope it's been helpful. We again refer you to our archives uh, of all past programs of the Virtual Bible Study at our website, collegeview.com or thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Lord willing, we'll be back at this same time next week for another study from the Word of God. We encourage you to join us at that time. Until then, read and study your Bible. Live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.